Good morning, everyone. How are y'all? Good. There's the mumbling good. Okay. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12, 31b. Do not turn to 31a. That would be a horrible mistake. 31b. We'll look at that, and then we'll look at the rest of uh, 13, 1 through 7, our favorite wedding passage. Uh, and as you turn there, I'll tell you a story, not about myself, uh, but about, about my uncle and aunt, uh, who I love. They're the closest kind of immediate family to my heart. And they have four kids. And a couple years ago, the oldest was about to go to a college in College Station. I, I won't say which one. It could have been, you know. Uh, but he was going, yeah, going to A&M. And so they uh, were planning kind of one last family trip, as you do, before your family breaks up and people go off to college. And so they wanted to go to Honduras. So they planned this big trip nine months out, this great family trip. So they found a place to stay. They'd been planning all these events that they were going to do on this trip. They were going to go snorkeling. They were going to do all these tours and stuff like that. And the anticipation is just growing and growing and growing as they're approaching the date. They finally get there. Nine months finally goes by. It's the night before. It's midnight. Their plane leaves at 6 a.m. and my uncle and aunt uh, are in bed and my uncle checks them in on his phone through the miracle of technology, you know, checks them in for their flight. And because it was an international flight in that moment, he gets the little notice that some of the, you know, flights give you of make sure you have your passport, just a friendly reminder. And all of a sudden my uncle says, hmm, uh, sweetie, are our passports up to date? To which she responds, I don't think so. Let's check. And they were not. So they're freaking out. It's midnight. And they're thinking, okay, is there some sort of emergency passport we can get? To which the answer through their research was, no, there's not. So because their passports were, you know, invalid, because they didn't have this one thing, this great trip that they had planned completely vanished before their eyes. No nice place to stay, no snorkeling, no fun family memories. Memories It totally vanishes before their eyes because they didn't have this one thing to get there, a passport. And so today, Paul is going to stop, press pause, and show us the one thing that if you don't have everything else that we've been talking about in chapter 12, everything we're going to talk about in chapter 14, vanishes before our eyes. All is worthless if we don't have this one thing. And if you've been to a wedding, you know what the one thing is. It's love. This one thing of love. So we're going to look at three main things. We're gonna show, he's going to show us this excellent way of love, this more excellent way of love, the cost of missing the way, the cost of missing the way, and thirdly, the nature, the characteristic of the way. What is the way like. So let me pray for us, and then we will jump in to God's word. Father, uh, it is a strange thing to preach on a familiar passage. I, I imagine most people in this room, if they have any background in Christianity, this is one of the first 10 passages they were introduced to. Uh, and we pray that familiarity wouldn't uh, blind us to the uh, life-changing truth in your word. Uh, that we would have is as we exist in a culture that we says the word love over and over and over again and means a billion different things, that today as we look at your scripture, we look at your definition of love and it would brand our hearts. And from now on, anytime we think of love, what does God think of love? This is what pops into our minds. I pray that your spirit would do that in our hearts today and we leave this place changed. We pray that in the name of your holy son, amen. Okay, look at... 1231, 
be, okay? Uh, and I will still, or I will show you a still more excellent way. So uh, Paul, all throughout 1 Corinthians, uh, has been kind of uh, taking them topic by topic. So we had to deal with uh, food offered to idols, things like that. And we've been in the section of how is the church meant to relate to one another? We all have gifts by the Spirit. How are we supposed to use those gifts in a way that actually builds up the church and glorifies God? That's what we've been looking at all through chapter 12. We'll keep looking at that all through chapter 14. And what we've seen with the Corinthians, shocker, they haven't been doing the best of jobs. Rather than building each other up and exalting the name of Christ, they've been tearing each other down and exalting their own name. They've been promoting their own gifts rather than glorifying God. And so Paul, again, has been correcting this. We've seen things like teachings like you're, you're all one body and individual members of it. And every single member is necessary. Even the members that seem weak are indispensable. And he's taught, taught on how the gifts flow together. And today he's going to pause right after he makes this great statement we saw in 31a, earnestly desire the higher gifts. He's going to press pause and say, I'm going to show you something even better. I'm going to pivot to the core of this community, this body and the members of it, how we are meant to relate a still more excellent way. That's what we're going to look at today, the core of this whole thing, this whole section. And it's really important for us to see about Paul. We, we have this, I guess, because of the billboards that say like, the Bible's the roadmap to life, unhelpful, untrue, things like that. We have this uh, idea that Paul's just kind of a manager. He's you're doing this wrong, let me fix it for you, and then you know, everything will be more efficient. That is not what Paul is doing here. He's not just showing up and giving extra correction, extra law, or anything like that. Rather, Paul is a man who knows his God, knows his Savior, and knows the heart of his God. And so what Paul's doing here isn't just giving them a more efficient way of doing church, but rather pulling back the curtain and saying, you want to know what your God really cares about? This is what your God really cares about. When Jesus is about to go to the cross, be raised, and ascend to the Father, when he's about to leave this world, we have in John, John 13 through 17, five chapters packed with Jesus preparing the disciples for that event, for his departure. They're worried. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. And he spends chapter after chapter after chapter teaching them, preparing them for his departure. And what does he focus on? Does he say, okay, I'm about to ascend, so no more Sermon on the Mounts for you guys. Peter, you seem to be a good speaker. You're going to give the first sermon, okay? You're the teacher. John, healing, that's your responsibility, right? Is he managing his team to make sure we stay efficient? No. What are the two main things Jesus talks about? First of all, I'm going to go, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. The Spirit is going to come, lead you into all truth, bring to your memory all that I've taught you. Again, He's not saying, I'm going, it's up to you now. He's saying, it's still up to God. The Spirit's going to come, God's doing everything. And then the second thing is he spends all his time saying, what type of community are you meant to be? What type of community are my disciples meant to be? And the answer is simply a community of love. Community of love. John 13, 34, a new commandment. Again, he's preparing them for his departure says this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. As I has, have loved you, you also are to love one another. What does that look like? What comes right before that new commandment? Washing one another's feet. As I have washed your feet, so you wash one another's feet. Again, how will 
the world looking in at this community of Jesus, how will they know, oh, those are people who follow Jesus. John uh, 13, 35, that next verse. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, that you're Jesus followers, if you have love for one another. Jesus preparing the church says the core of this community, the foundation that everything else is going to be built on, the fountain that everything is going to flow from is love. Jesus points them to love. And what type of love does he point point them to? Love one another as I have loved you. How has Jesus loved them? He lays down his life for them. John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The Corinthians are doing the exact opposite of what Jesus established, of the core that Jesus points to, tearing others down to build themselves up. And so Paul is going to show them your gifts are meant to flow from this core. As you use your spiritual gifts that God has given you, it's not to build yourself up. It's meant to flow from the fountain of love. This is the excellent way that Paul is going to point to, this excellent way of love. And so the first thing he points to is probably not what we would do. As Westerners, we'd probably give a definition. Love is this. Paul actually points, first of all, before he kind of talks about what this love is like, says uh, the cost. What is the cost of missing this excellent way. If you think, yeah, Jesus, that's cool. I guess love's important. I've kind of got, you know, better plans. I'm, I'm super gifted. I don't know if you've noticed. I, 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 you know, I know what I'm doing. What, what, what does that attitude result in? What's the cost of missing the excellent way that Jesus lays out for us? Look at 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging symbol or a clanging symbol. If I have the gift of tongues, speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. Notice a couple things. First of all, Paul is walking through the gifts. Remember the context. It's all about how we use our spiritual gifts. He's not just randomly saying love is important. He's saying if you have these, these higher gifts that I've just told you to earnestly desire, but you don't have love, Here's the result. Okay, so he's walking through the gifts. The second thing is he gives the highest, most extreme version of that gift. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, in a second he's going to say, if I understand all mysteries, if I have all faith to move mountains, the, the, the highest possible example of the gifts. If I preach like Charles Spurgeon, if I have the mind of St. Augustine and write like St. Augustine, but have not love, right? He's giving the most, the, the highest possible example. And then we see the result of not having love. What's the result? A noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Notice he's not saying your gift is negated and you go back to neutral. You go in the negative, okay? Last week, uh, a lovely uh, family in this church invited my family and the Ashleys, Jeff's family over for dinner. It was a great time, uh, and they had a piano there, a, a, a beautiful instrument uh, with, you know, if there's a skilled pianist, I'm sure it's just, it fills the room with lovely melodies, but 
There was no skilled uh, pianist there. There was uh, Jeff's five-year-old daughter, Jeff's two-year-old son, and my two-year-old son, who decided to you know, have a trio. They all sat on the bench, uh, and they just, with their fists, were just slamming the keys as hard as they possibly could. And let me tell you, in that moment, I didn't think, there's some average you know, piano players. I thought, that sound is horrible. And you know what I prefer over it? Silence. I do not want this to continue. That's the image Paul's giving here. It's not just, you know, your gifts could be really useful, but if you don't have love, it's, you know, neutral. It goes in the negative. A clanging cymbal, a noisy gong. That's the result of not having love. Look at verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Notice the most you know, extreme example again, understanding all mysteries. And then second, notice what do these all have in common? Prophecy, understanding of everything, right? It's, it's the people who see clearly. There's no mysteries. I, I know everything. I'm correct about everything. Notice it's difficult. Whoever has these gifts, these super extreme gifts, it would be difficult for them to be wrong about something. There's no mysteries for them. They see and understand everything yet. For that person, if love is absent, what's the result? Nothing. I am nothing. Seeing rightly, seeing clearly, being able to discern and actually see reality does not give you license to do and act however you want to. Love is the essential piece. Some of us might say, you know what? I'm just not afraid to tell it like it is. You know, I, I've got the guts to tell the truth. I'm not like these other people who will dance around things. That's great. Be careful because your awesome insight might make you nothing if love is absent. There's a strange thing we hear often from uh, preachers who are a bit more aggressive, let's say it that way, uh, where there's kind of a justification for it by, you know, Jesus flipped the tables and the prophets screamed and stuff like that. Uh, and I know what they're doing. They're, they're, they're pushing back against postmodernism that will say, you know, we all have to be real gentle and feely and that's equally as wrong. But most of them, what they miss, Jesus does go flip the tables. What does he do before? Jesus does pronounce woes against Jerusalem. What happens a couple chapters before as Jesus is walking up to Jerusalem? He weeps. Oh, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you like a mother hen gathers her chicks. What's happening there? See, harsh words is never divorced from love. Go read the prophets before God, begging him to turn away his wrath. How long, O oh Lord, will you pour out your wrath on these people? Their harsh words is never divorced from a heart of love. So if you want to speak harshly, that's great. You better make sure you've wept before to the people you're speaking harshly to. Otherwise, you're not being like Jesus. You're not being like the prophets. If I see everything rightly, if I have these prophetic powers, but no love, I am nothing. And then verse three, if I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So Paul's shifting away from the gifts. You know, somebody maybe could be listening to that and say, well, I don't have tongues or prophecy. So I guess he's not talking to me. So he goes to something that everybody could relate to. If I give away all that I have, again, notice the extreme. I give away everything. This image of giving away everything you have to the poor, something that we would all say is a good thing. Or I make the ultimate sacrifice. I'm like the martyrs of the early church that we read about who were singing hymns while they were being crucified and burnt alive and things like that. I give over my body to be burned. 
the ultimate sacrifice financially or with your very life, but have not love, what do I gain? Nothing. No reward here, no reward in heaven. I gain nothing if I have not love. Again, if you miss the core, everything else falls apart. You don't have the passport, right? The vacation vanishes. If you don't have love, that's the cost of missing this excellent way of love that he's talking about. He's warning them, very pastorally, by the way. There's mercy woven into every single warning. If you didn't care about somebody, you just wouldn't warn them. You let them run off the cliff. He's warning them. If you miss the way of love, here's the result. Here's the result. God does not care about your loveless religious performance. All throughout the scriptures, we actually have God speaking to the prophets in the Old Testament of Israel as they are doing the sacrifices that they're supposed to do, singing the hymns that they're supposed to hymn or sing, uh, all these different things. And we have verse after verse of God addressing those people, loveless people who are doing the ritual. Here's a couple of them. Amos 5.21, this is God speaking. I hate, so maybe I didn't say it strong enough. God hates your loveless religious performance. I hate, I despise your feasts. So they're doing the feasts that God told them to do. God hates them. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. The and the peace offering of your fattened calf, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. So they're singing to him, take away the noise. I'm closing my ears. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But what does God want? Verse 24, let justice roll like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. Israel's doing all the right stuff, but there's injustice and there's no righteousness there. God says, take away your songs, take away your rituals. What I want is your heart to change. I want that stuff to flow from your heart and it's not. Injustice, unrighteousness is flowing from your heart. Next verse, Isaiah 29, 13. Why is judgment coming on Israel? This is what God says. The people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips and yet their hearts are far from me. You see that? The religious performance is there. They're drawing near, they're honoring with lips. Hearts are far from him. Hosea 6, 6, one more. I desire, God speaking, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. Something Jesus quotes uh, in Matthew. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God doesn't care about religious performance if there's no heart there. He cares about who you are. He cares about your character. You may say, yeah, but isn't Old Testament God a little angry? Uh, New Testament Jesus, super loving and great. First of all, you've just repeated a heretic Marcion. Go listen to our early uh, church uh, theological equippings. Don't be like that. Uh, there's no two gods, uh, one of the Old Testament, one of the new. Second of all, look at Matthew 7. We've read this verse a couple times. What does Jesus say to those who bring their religious performance, even those who use their spiritual gifts, yet the heart is far away? Jesus says... Matthew 7, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? There's the gift in your name. Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is not a verse to terrify Christians. This is a verse to terrify those who think they earn God's favor through their religious works. I never knew you, you were never mine. Your heart was never mine. Again, you didn't use your gifts to, to exalt my name and build up the church. You used them to build up your own name. It is, it should be 
a terrifying thing that it's possible to do a lot of things that seem Christian and yet be self-serving. Do it to serve the idol of of self-glorification rather than to exalt God. We see this all the time. Pastors that are preaching the scriptures every Sunday, sometime for years, but it's really just to build their own brand. And we've seen a lot of the results of that over the past few years. When it's really about self-exaltation, it's not about the exaltation of Christ's name. Again, Paul wants the Corinthians to see very vividly the worthlessness of their deeds apart from love. Again, it's not just neutral, it's negative. God, if I could say this kindly, God's not impressed with our skills. He made us from the dirt, okay? When we do something good, God's not like, whoa, I didn't know they could do that, right? He's holding our lungs together so we can take another breath and stay alive for 30 more seconds, okay? He's very well aware of our limitations. God cares not about our skills. He cares about your character. He cares about who you are. Read the Old Testament. We're about to start, you know, Bible reading plans in January. We're about to, about to crank back up again. Start in Genesis. Let me just give you some advice. This is a total sidebar. Just push through Leviticus and Numbers. Everybody goes, Genesis, love it. Exodus, love it. Leviticus, don't love it, but I'll push through Numbers. And it's like 10 chapters of just counting all the Israelites. And you're like, okay, Psalms and Proverbs for the rest of the year. That's what we do. Just push through, okay? You're almost to Joshua and then there's war and we all love that kind of stuff. Okay, just keep pushing. Uh, but when you read the Old Testament, one of the things that again, so painfully obvious is man's inability to follow God's law in his own strength. I mean, it's just glaring in every single book. And what does God do to solve this problem? Does he give them an easier law? Does he give them, you know, I guess that first one was bad. Let me give them a new law, see if they can follow that one. Does he just say, I guess their training was bad. I'll send them better leaders and we can, you know, train. No, what does he do? Changes the heart. There's a new covenant coming where I'm going to write my law, not on tablets and say, follow this. I'm going to write my law. Where? On their heart. That heart of stone that all is flowing out of it is unrighteous. I'm going to take that away. I'm going to give them a heart of flesh. I'm going to put my spirit within them. God wants what you do to flow out of who you are. And he says, I'll change who you are. That's God's solution to this problem of man's constant sinfulness. When we rely on our own works, we do. We, we assemble, we praise him without love. And God said, I'll change that. I'll replace the heart. That's God's desire. If you neglect the heart, you, you neglect the fountain that all the gifts are meant to flow from. That's Paul's point. Miss this one thing, all the gifts, uh, we shouldn't even talk about this because they're all worthless. That's the cost of missing the way. Very vivid, very strong warning. If you miss it, you'll miss everything else. And then lastly, he's gonna show us the nature of the way of love. What is this way like? Look at verse four. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not uh, irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So uh, everybody in the history of the world has in one way or another claimed, you know, why they're doing what they're doing is in the name of love, okay? So we've seen in, in our culture, uh, whether it's, you know, just different, what's, what's the tagline of the LGBTQ plus community? Love, right? Love wins. Love's better than hate. That's, that's the, why are we doing this? Why uh, did whatever that name, Chaz, what was the bunch of people in Portland who, 
Yeah, no, no hate is here, right? Love, this is a community of love. That's the motivation. Even Hitler, not to use another Hitler analogy, uh, why does he do the things that he does? You might say he hates the Jews. He would probably say, not to speak for Hitler, uh, but I imagine he would say something like, uh, for the love of Germany, for the love of the father, fatherland, motherland. Tim, fatherland or motherland? Fatherland, okay, yes. Motherland's Russia. Stalin, I'm sure he loves the motherland as well, right? Everything is for love, right? So here we have God saying, this is what love is. All your culture around you is gonna say, this is love, this is love, here's what it is. So Paul isn't necessarily giving them a definition, he's more giving them a description. Here's what it's like. It's almost this picture of him walking down this way and saying, love is this, love is this. It's not that, it's not that, it's not that. It's this and this and this. So look at four, verse four. Let's, let's walk down the way with Paul, if you will. First two things, love is patient and kind. Love is patient. Patience assumes there's someone to be patient with, okay? It's assuming that you've been provoked. It's assuming that you've been annoyed. So if you act out and then your excuse is they started it, first of all, every parent, no parent's ever been like, oh, okay, kid, sorry. You should have punched them in the face, right? But we do that too. You don't know what it's like to work with this guy. You don't know what it's like to interact with this person, right? They started it. That's the point. Love is patient. Okay, so uh, Tim uh, is, is one of my closest friends, but no relationship is without its rough patches. So let me tell you about one of our rough patches. Uh, Tim loves Germany, red flag. Uh, <laughs> And he knows German, he speaks German uh, and taught himself German. And if you know another language, you know that you have to kind of keep the language fresh in your mind, otherwise you lose it. Uh, and so Tim in uh, t you know, text messages when we're texting late at night, are you asleep yet? Stuff like that. Uh, he, <laughs> so ridiculous. Okay, he'll text me in German. And I don't speak German because first of all, I'm a red-blooded American. Second of all, I've never taken the time to learn it. So here's what I have to do. Okay, there's a text from Tim in German. Copy, uh, close the message app, open internet, Google translates. Loading, loading, select language, German, paste. No, I'm not asleep yet. Okay, why <laughs> couldn't you have just said that in English? And so again, I'm being provoked constantly by Tim, but I want him to keep the German in his mind, you know, but so I, I love him and I'm patient with him, okay? So that's a dumb example, but you get my point, right? Patience assumes you've been provoked. Love, you can't love someone unless there's a reason to love them. Bad behavior is not an excuse not to be patient. In fact, it's the cause of the patience. It's the need for the patience itself. And by the way, how countercultural is patience? What happens in our culture if someone gets in your way, someone disagrees with you, they're the enemy, cancel them, move them out of the way. We don't do nuance. We don't have the patience to say, hey, what did you mean by that? Can you explain to me? I, I don't know if I understand fully. What do we do? Quick conclusions, that person's crazy, right? No time in our culture for patience, yet biblical love here we see is patient. Why? Has there ever been a greater example of patience than Jesus with 12 disciples, right? Every gospel you read, you're just like, okay. He's like, okay, uh, let's go over here and minister. And they're like, should we call down fire on those people that insulted us? And Jesus is like, okay, no, 
no, okay, calm down, you know. Peter, you're the Messiah. Jesus is like, that's great, that's right. And he's like, let's go overthrow the Romans. And Jesus is like, no, no, you're still missing it, okay, right? No greater example of patience than our Savior, being patient with his disciples, being patient with us. We may mock them, he is just as patient with us, if not more so. Biblical love says you can be patient with others because someone has been infinitely patient with you. Biblical love is patient. Secondly, love is kind. Again, this assumes there's someone to be kind to. Uh, Kindness in our culture, I think, is a little underrated, maybe a bit misunderstood, especially for us Bible Belt Baptists. Right? Life's going horrible, but it's Sunday, so splash some water on your face, put a tie on, we're going to church, and we're like, yes, indeed, it is the Lord's day, and we are in the Lord's house, and how great is life, right? Never let them see you sweat. That's kind of, our, uh, kind of our mantra. And so we could see, or we could confuse biblical kindness, true kindness, with superficial friendliness. You see that? It looks similar. Uh, so I'll give you another example that will make me look bad as a minister. So... We want to know you, right? The, the Parkway pastors don't uh, view ourselves in the high tower just dictating God's law. We actually want to shepherd. We think that's what, uh, you know, pastors should do. So we'll take you out to lunch. Uh, and some of you have real generic jobs. And so I'll take you out to lunch. You know, the first time I meet you and I'll say, hey, how are you doing? And you'll say, great. And I'll say, what do you do for work? And you'll give me some real generic description. You know, I'm a general manager for external operations and systems. And in my head, I'm thinking... That's the most generic thing I've ever heard. I have no clue what that means. General manager for external operations. But my face, what's my face doing? Wow, okay, nice. It's very, (laughs) right? Don't confuse that for kindness. That's just a social skill, I guess, right? That's not biblical kindness. If I cared about you, I would say, hang on, I didn't understand a word you just said. Can you say it to me like I'm a five-year-old and then maybe we can make progress in this relationship? So... If I say that to you, it's because I'm loving you. I'm, I'm obeying the scriptures, right? It's not superficial kindness. It's not a skill. It's, it's a heart characteristic, something God's done in you that flows out of you, actually caring about the other person, seeing them as someone made in the image of God. If they're a Christian, as, as a brother and sister in Christ, someone with hurt, someone with hope, someone with desires, someone that God knows and has made his child and then caring about them, moving forward with kindness. Uh, the early church, my favorite kind of subject of studying, Tertullian, who was a, a early church father, wrote uh, about how the pagans in a lot of different regions didn't call Christians Christians. They called them something roughly translated as the kind ones or those made up of kindness. It was such a mark of the early church that that's how they were described, not little, little Christs, but those kind ones. And I bet it didn't just mean they smiled more. I bet they were actually kind. And in the same way that you can be patient with others because someone's been patient with you, you can be kind to others because someone has been infinitely kind to you. Ephesians 4, 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Love is kind. Verse four and five, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. So he's now pointing, Paul's gonna say what love is, patient, kind, and then now what love isn't. Why? Because this is probably exactly how the Corinthians are acting. They're boasting, they're envying, they're being rude, tearing others down. Notice what do all these things have in common? They're inward focused. 
They're focused on self-glorification. They're uh, focused on getting my needs met. If you're, if you're envious, you're jealous of somebody else's glory. You don't have it, they've got it, and you envy it. You want it. Right? If you're boasting, you've got the glory and you're letting others know it. Right? Same, same symptom. You want glory. You want self-exaltation. If you're arrogant, you're uh, honoring yourself, puffing yourself up, rude, you're tearing others down. Why? Because it makes you look taller. Tearing others down. Love, biblical love, is the total opposite. It's not inward focus. It's outward focus and upward focus. Focus on building others up and exalting the name of Jesus Christ. Matthew 22. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he, Jesus, said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. Upward focused. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. Outward focused. Love your neighbor as yourself. You want uh, a definition right from Jesus' mouth? There it is. Upward focused and outward focused. Not inward focused. Doesn't envy, boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. Verse 5. It doesn't insist on its own way. Doesn't insist on its own way. Love isn't self-seeking. Maybe if you have this memorized in another translation. It's not self-seeking. It doesn't seek one's own advantages. When you're in relationship, do you view the other person as just someone that you can get benefits from? Like obvious examples of if they're rich, you know, like they could take me on great vacations or uh, maybe less subtle examples. They're, they seem to be in, in the know, in the inner circle. If I latch onto them, maybe I'll be brought into the inner circle. You see that. Using them because you're going to get something out of them or do you think the other way around? Here's a fellow believer, brother, sister in Christ. How can I serve them? Where are they hurting? Where are they not trusting Christ? And how can I go around and help point them to our Savior. Love isn't self-seeking. It seeks after the good of others, rather. Again, verse 5, it is not irritable or resentful. Again, easily angered, irritable. Do people, uh, when they're around you, do they walk on eggshells? Are, they, are you a delight to be around or do you snap at any moment? Do people, are you even aware? Maybe you think, you know, who cares what other people think? It's the problem. Okay, think about what they think. Do they, do they walk on eggshells? Uh, something that people say to me a lot, uh, is, I don't say this to brag or to discourage you from giving me this encouragement. So it's a weird example to use and probably one that I shouldn't use, but I'll use it anyway because I'm pretty deep in it at this point. Uh, <laughs> something people say to me a lot is that I'm real positive, real nice, all that stuff. And that's great. And you can tell me that. I love hearing that. But typically what they mean or what they even say is, you're so positive, I just wake up and I'm so negative. Uh, and that's, that's always frustrated me a little bit because what you see before you, I mean, I drink coffee like the rest of you. I don't wake up and I'm just like, joy. You know, I, I have to, it's a choice for me, right? I have to go before the Lord and say, I'm real tired. I'm frustrated with everybody in my life. Please change my heart. That's, there's nothing natural that's coming out. There's only stuff that the Lord has done. And what frustrates me is the kind of, I woke up on the wrong side of the bed excuse seems kind of like an excuse to just kind of live however you already want to live. And so I, I've never really understood the whole, you know, I'm just a real negative person because if I cheated on Claudia, my wife, if I had an affair and you guys caught me in front of me and I'd say, hey, rough day that day, my bad. What would you probably hopefully say? You, are you saying that as an excuse? I'm confused as to what's happening, that you can't just have an affair because it was a rough day. And I would say, that's right. And you can't say that because you're irritable all the time is because you woke up on the wrong side of the bed and I would trap you in that, okay? <laughs> so, love isn't irritable. 
right? Love is aware and concerned. Yeah. What's, what's, what's underneath that irritability? Just selfishness. You want to do what you want to do. Who cares what other people think? In fact, they should just get in line and accept who you are, which, by the way, sounds exactly like our culture. You do you. Everybody else can either get on board or get out of the way. Right? Selfishness. It's the same thing as our culture. Love is not like that. It's not irritable. It's not easily angered. Resentful. Love is not resentful. Literally, it doesn't count up wrongdoings. Keeps record of wrongs. Again, uh, if you have it uh, memorized in another translation, this idea of someone literally with a calculator, you know, okay, another wrong against me, that brings it to 754. Or someone, you know, counting, uh, keeping score of how many wrongs are done uh, against you. What's beneath that? Unforgiveness. Unforgiveness, another one against me, another one against me. I'm not overlooking it, I'm not forgiving it. Why is unforgiveness such a big deal? Look at Matthew 18, 23. Let's look at these 10 verses. This is Jesus speaking. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wishes to settle his accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay it, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and his children all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees and implored him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of the pity, out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him and choked him saying, pay what you owe. And his fellow servants uh, felt down and, or sorry, his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and he went and put him in the prison until he should pay his debt. And when the fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went out and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have mercy on one of your fellow servants as I had mercy on you. Why is unforgiveness, why is keeping a record of wrongs so offensive? Because there was one who saw your record that is far longer than any of us would dare admit and forgave it all and paid for it all himself. Love, God's love keeps no record of wrongs. God's love forgives. Verse six, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. The idea here is it doesn't rejoice in injustice that benefits me. Again, think about the Corinthians. There's injustice happening all around them, but it's benefiting the proud and the mighty and they're rejoicing in it. Look how great this makes me look. It doesn't do that. Love doesn't do that. Rather, it rejoices with the truth. I think personally, I could be wrong. This is one of the things that our culture inside the church and out misses the most. Uh, Tim talked uh, a couple weeks ago in theological equipping on uh, the German church, red flag, German church uh, during World War II. And one of the big things he brought out is uh, the, the mistake that the church made in Germany as they go with the Nazis and, and don't really see what's happening here is tribe over truth. They gathered with their tribe, what benefited them, but they didn't discern and see what was actually true. They didn't rejoice with the truth, if you want to say it that way. So let's do a little experiment. Uh, let's imagine everyone in this room was basically conservative. I know that's a stretch. 
so imagine what's going to happen in the news when other, you know, right-wing people, conservative people, whatever label you want to get, alt-right, whatever, when those people do bad things, dumb things, and it's on the news, what's your reaction? Is your reaction, man, that's dumb. Those people are dumb. That's false. They shouldn't do that. Or is the reaction to other things? Either, man, now people are going to think conservatives are bad. Those guys are making our tribe look bad. Or what I think is more common, look at the liberal, look, they riot too. Liberals do bad things too. Do you see what's happening there? Where's your heart going? Tribe, not truth. Do you see that? Creeps in, very dangerous. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but delights with the truth. Are you nuanced? Are you patient? Do you rejoice with truth or are you focused in on your tribe? St. Augustine, who again is, is the, the greatest thinker in the history of the Western church, wrote more than any one human could ever read. At least that's what they say, which I've always thought. I haven't read it all, but if he's writing it, surely me reading it's gonna take longer. So I've spent all my life, but that's a topic for another time. Uh, he is writing all these things and all throughout his life as he's going back and rethinking through things, he discovers error. And he's getting, even during his lifetime, this great reputation as, as this great thinker. And so if there's anybody who would think, I need to cover these things up. I'm getting lifted up on this pedestal and all these errors. If everybody knew it, it would make me kind of look bad. It would be him. But his attitude was the total opposite. He said this, I'm, I'm summarizing a bit. He says, when a mistake has been revealed, this is not an occasion for grief, but rather an occasion for celebration. Why? Because error is no longer clouding the truth and the truth can shine forth. And even at the end of his life, he wrote an entire uh, book, for lack of a better term, of pointing back to all, all the errors that he has made and the ways he had rethought a lot of things. At the cost of his own reputation, he exalted the truth. He didn't want people to follow him if he was wrong. He wanted the truth to be what people loved and cherished. Love does not delight in self-serving injustice, but rejoices with the truth. And then verse 7 Final verse, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So Paul's going back to what love is. I'm not saying what it's not anymore, saying what it is. And let me just give an immediate clarifier. Uh, he's not saying love is gullible, okay? He's not saying love literally believes anything that it's told. Like if you said, hey, two plus two equals five. And I said, I don't, I'm not good at math but I'm pretty sure I know that one and I don't think so. And you said, love believes all things. That's not what Paul's saying here, okay? He's not saying love is gullible. Rather, Paul's simply saying love has no limits. This is the ongoing character of love. Love bears all things. It never tires of support, never tires of exalting or, or lifting others up, holding others up. It doesn't buckle underneath someone's faults. Love believes all things. It never loses faith never loses faith. It loves default is trust. That doesn't mean you're not discerning and, and thinking through, okay, what's truth, what's reality, but your default isn't skepticism. Again, that's just like our culture. Jeff talked about postmodernism uh, earlier this morning. Our, our culture is just, the default is skepticism, being poised to cancel. Where's somebody in the wrong? Boom, got you. You're done forever. Even if you're dead, right? You're done. Uh, but love's default is trust. Love hopes all things. Simply just saying love never gives up. Love isn't cynical. Love isn't naturally negative. Why? It's also not blissfully ignorant. Again, it hopes all things, meaning 
You know who your God is. You know he's in control. And you know, even if you can't see it, he knows what he's doing. There's this natural hopefulness. The arm of the Lord is not too short to save. Even if the person in front of you, that's annoying you, that's sending you text messages in German, won't change, right? God will change their heart. You're putting your trust in God, not in yourself. I'm just kidding. Tim, you can keep doing it. And then lastly, love endures all things. Simply just love never gives up. Love is the hill that Christians die on. God's love for you has no limits. Your love for fellow believers has no limits. How often should we forgive? Peter asked his rabbi, Jesus says, 70 times seven. Again, I don't know that math. Jesus' point is always, right? Love never gives up. Again, this is the biblical idea of love. You wanna know what God thinks love is in a culture that uses love in a billion different ways. Here it is. Uh, my wife has a friend uh, who is a Christian and she was dating, this is several years ago, dating another Christian uh, who was uh, uh, even a worship pastor. It's not Tim, I'm not talking about Tim. Uh, there's more worship pastors than just Tim. Uh, so she was dating this guy and it was, the relationship was kind of abusive in literally every sense of the term. Uh, he was super cruel, super manipulative and all of her friends and family were just begging her, please dump this guy. He doesn't care about you. Look at, all, look at the fruit of this relationship and her refrain always was, but he says he loves me. He says he loves me and no one could convince her otherwise until one day she read 1 Corinthians 13 and the eyes of her hearts were enlightened. And the next time that they had a fight, she literally opened up her Bible after he said, I love you and read, love is patient, love is kind. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, read the whole text. And then she closed her Bible and she threw it at his head <laughs> and said, you do not love me. And she dumped him, okay? So uh, Claudia telling me this story said, yeah, we live in a culture where everybody knows the word love, but nobody knows what love is. Here's what love is. Here's biblical love. So simply, I mean, it's not a complex sermon. Do you love one another? Is your heart towards one another? Again, this is in the context of Christians with Christians. Patient, kind, bearing all things. Is your heart outward focused and upward focused or is it inward focused? What can I get out of this relationship? What can I get out of this? How can I make my name great here? Paul's gonna say, that's not the excellent way. That's not the more excellent way of love is the fountain as we keep talking about spiritual gifts, we're gonna talk about it for a whole nother chapter in chapter 14, is the fountain that those gifts flow from, love. And you may say, if you're honest with yourself, knowing that you're, uh, though justified, a sinner, no. And so what do I do about that? And the answer wouldn't be some sort of moralistic mustering up your own abilities. Again, this isn't just a way for Paul to say, do better. We can only have this conversation in the first place because love himself came down. When our hearts were cold, when they were filled with hate, Jesus came down. He didn't give us a new law. He didn't just say, hey, my people are supposed to like each other, so get with it. He says, I'll heal your hate. I'll take away that cold heart. I'll give you a new heart and I'll bring you in to the Trinitarian family of love. The Father, the Son and the Spirit have for all eternity been sharing in the glorious fellowship of love and the eternal God, the Son, came down to adopt you into that family where you can cry, Abba, Father. 
You've been brought in. Again, and I keep going back to the upper room. Jesus, John 27, this is his high priestly prayer before he's about to go to the cross, prays to the Father. Here's the last line of that prayer. I, Jesus talking to the Father, I've made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You want a verse to meditate on for the rest of your life, there it is. That the love which you, O Father, have loved me may be in them and I in them. This love that Paul's talking about isn't just a random character trait. This is something that comes from the very heart of God. And the son has made you an adopted son. The son has made you an adoptive daughter and the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So don't try to muster up a better attempt at religious performance. Rather, you wanna grow in love, grow in Christ. It's the only way we can truly grow in love. Because he was patient with you, you can be patient towards others. Because he was infinitely kind to you, you can be kind towards others. Because he, the only one who actually had all glory, the only one who could actually boast, laid it all down. You can lay down the desire for your own glory. You can lay down all envy or boasting or arrogance because he looked at your record of wrongs and didn't just say forgive and said, I'll pay for that. The penalty that's accumulated by that record, I'll take and I'll forgive you. You can forgive others. And because he's the only one who's truly born all things, truly born the wrath of God that you and I deserve, we can bear all things for others. Jesus Christ is the only one who could actually set you free to walk this way. So you wanna grow in love, you wanna obey 1 Corinthians 13, grow in Christ, go to him. Don't look to your own efforts. The excellent way of love is just the excellent way of our savior. Let me pray and then we will take communion and celebrate this reality that he has done for us. Father, it's a strange thing, again, to, to see things that we should be doing. We're acting wrongly and we want to act rightly and our reaction, because our hearts are sinful, we're quick to look to ourselves, is just to think, great, how can I do this? And the entire point of the gospel is we can't. Only one can, only you can, Lord Jesus. And so I pray that the gospel would settle on our hearts where we would say that uh, we've uh, been crucified with Christ and now it's Christ who lives in us. The only way we can grow in this is if we look to you. That's a, that's a work your spirit does in our hearts. So I pray that you would just lift our eyes even as we take communion and celebrate this reality that we would be people uh, of love. We would, uh, people would know that we are disciples of Christ by our love for one another. Why? Because we're in Christ. You've brought us in to this family. So we love you and pray in Jesus' holy name, amen.